0: This morning, we start Paul's letter to the Philippians. As I said earlier in Discord this week, it's been a long time coming, but I'm so excited to get to this letter. Every book of the Bible feels like my favorite when I'm teaching through it, but Philippians feels like my favorite even when I'm not teaching through it. Um, They're all great, but I do love this book. It has many famous verses in it that you might all know many verses that might have meant something to you. Certainly there are verses that mean a lot to me. Uh, So we're gonna take our time going through this book. Usually I tend to have kind of a faster pace and I'll take kind of a whole, like whatever whatever topic the writer is covering, I try to handle that all in one Sunday, even if it's a lot of verses. Um, But this time going through, I'm gonna be going a lot slower. So I think there's a lot here we can chew on for a while. And I'm just sad to realize it's been, it's taken so long to get here, and there are only four chapters, and I don't want to be done in like four or five weeks, so we're going to go slow and spend some time. Uh, But like we always do on the first Sunday of a new book, we do the introduction, and so we talk about things like who wrote it, the background, kind of the main themes, and so this is going to be more of an introductory thing. Hopefully it gets you excited to learn more but there may be less immediate application this Sunday. We're just gonna talk more about the book in general, kind of preparing the way. So the first thing we're gonna talk about is the author. Who wrote the book that we call The Letter of St. Paul to the Philippians? Yes, but what do I always do when we come to a new book and we ask who wrote it? What's the first thing that I always remind us of? Nope, yep. That the Holy Spirit wrote the whole Bible 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So we can't forget that every book, including this one, is divinely inspired, not just the words or thoughts of man. There are churches that don't believe this anymore. That's why it's so important. There are, are liberal schools of thought. There are liberal kinds of theology that teach that these are just man's thoughts and that there's parts that you don't like. Well, that was just a a white heteronormative male, you know, in the first century within his culture. That part doesn't apply to us today. But all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So Paul, uh, the, the Holy Spirit did write this But obviously, like like Noah was saying too, Paul did write it, so the Holy Spirit inspired. So the Holy Spirit is the author, and he inspired Paul to write it. So we begin Philippians 1, verse 1. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. And so it says here, Paul and Timothy. I would also like to say that this is probably more like Paul and with Timothy because obviously they're not writing at the same time. One of them is writing it, one's not. And it might be that Timothy wrote the words while Paul dictated, but it becomes clear in this letter that Paul is the one talking. When he says, I, in this letter, it is Paul, it's Paul's story. So he's the the main person sort of dictating this letter and Timothy is either the one writing it for him or perhaps Timothy is just with him. We'll see later on in this book that Paul says he plans to send Timothy to Philippi. And so, Timothy is with him while he's writing this. And so, it might be a way of Paul just saying, Timothy's with me as I write this. Either way, we look at the authors. Holy Spirit wrote it for sure by the hands of Paul and with. So, who is Paul? We've gone over this before a lot, so this is going to be a review for a lot of you. But Paul was named Saul in Hebrew. Paul was his Greek name. He was a Roman citizen, and so among the Greek-speaking places, they knew him as Paul. Among the Hebrew-speaking places, they knew him as Saul, same person. Uh, He was born in a place called Tarsus, which is modern-day Turkey, and you can see it here. Right above Antioch, right to the north and then west of Antioch is a place called Tarsus. It's because he was born there that he had Roman citizenship. Apparently, if you were born in certain places, you could just get it. If you were a Hebrew, you could just get Roman citizenship if you were born in a certain area. You could also acquire it by means of paying a lot of money if you so chose and if you were able. But he was born there, so he was a Roman citizen. He was also trained to be a Pharisee. I love my clicker when it doesn't work. I love it more when it doesn't work though. So he was trained to be a Pharisee, which was the most religious, most strict, most elite, most legalistic, and most respected calling among the Jews of the time. He's very zealous for God. He did not believe in Jesus initially. When Christ was on the earth preaching, Saul did not believe in this Jesus, and in fact, he persecuted the church. Right up until Jesus decided to reveal himself to Paul, knocked him off a horse, bright light voice spoke, saying, you know, Saul, who why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus. And he becomes a believer. He gave his life for Jesus. He began preaching everywhere. He became an apostle, called by God specifically to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And he spent the latter part of his life in prison. He wrote many letters, and like I said before, he wrote a total of about 28% of the New Testament. In these letters we have, are most are, are, those are all from him, 28% is from him. So he's been a very influential apostle, even to this day. But who was Timothy? Timothy, I couldn't find many pictures of Timothy, not many of written pictures. This makes him look like a sad, Uh, American dude with a beard and Eastern Orthodox garment, but it's a picture, whatever. Timothy was a young man who joined with Paul on one of his later missionary journeys. Paul calls him his true son in the faith, and there are indications that he was quite young when he began serving, perhaps even late teens, early 20s when he was serving with Paul. Even while being so young though, he was set apart. The elders lay their hands on him. He received a special gifting, an anointing. And then he went with Paul and he became Paul's representative in multiple churches. We've read that Paul sent Timothy to Corinth. He sends him to Philippi, that we'll read in this letter. And he sent him for a long time to be Paul's representative in Ephesus. And in fact, Paul writes him two letters we have in this Bible, 1st and 2nd Timothy that are to guide him in that work in Ephesus. And in one part in that book, in 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul says, don't let them look down on you for your youth. And so he was a young man, but he was trustworthy and faithful, and Paul valued him greatly. In this letter, Philippians, Paul says about Timothy that there was no one like him. And he later speaks of Timothy's proven worth and how he served with Paul in the gospel like a son. So those are the people and then who's the letter written to? The church, the saints in Philippi. Saints just means set apart ones. It's every believer, we're all saints. We don't follow the tradition of the the Catholics that would name a person only a saint if they were particularly good. Um, The Bible calls every believer a saint. So we're all saints. Okay, so some background on Philippi. Paul, after getting saved, became an apostle and an evangelist, and he also became a missionary, and he had four missionary journeys recorded in the New Testament. On his second missionary journey, and there's a picture of all four of them, might be hard to see, but the orange line is the second missionary journey. Begins in Antioch, and you can see how it goes from there up into Tarsus, and from there over into uh, Lystra, and up in there kind of through Asia Minor gets up to the top there, and you can see the very kind of top where the orange line is, Philippi. So the second missionary journey, when he began that second missionary journey, that's right after he separated with with Barnabas over the issue of do we bring John Mark with us or not. Barnabas wanted to, Paul didn't want to, so Barnabas goes one direction with John Mark, and Paul brought along with him Silas for the second missionary journey. They go north through Syria, through Cilicia, and they're strengthening the churches, it says in Acts 15. When they get to Derby, just past Tarsus, that's where Paul meets Timothy. Just kind of an FYI. If you see where Tarsus is, and there's Derby just past it. Can you can you all see that? I know it's kind of hard to see. There's Tarsus here, and Derby's there. That's where Paul meets Timothy in Derby and is so impressed by him and just takes him with him for the rest of this journey. These journeys, these missionary journeys, took years. Paul spent a year and a half over in Corinth, way over there. Spent a couple of years, like two and a half possibly years, in Ephesus. But before that, as, as I said, he went to Philippi. And in Acts 16, we read the story of how Paul and his crew came to Philippi. It's described as one of the leading cities. It was a leading city in the district of Macedonia. It was a Roman colony. And they were there, it says, many days in Acts 16. On one of the days, they went outside the gate because they supposed there was a place of prayer. Now, that gives us insight into Philippi. Philippi clearly didn't have enough of a Jewish population to have a temple. You know, Paul's normal custom was to come into a new place and go into the temple to try to reach the Jews first for the gospel. But here we don't see that. it says they go outside the gate where they guessed there was going to be some kind of place of prayer for Jews and they find some there's a group of women who came together for prayer and so they're sharing the gospel there and there's a lady named Lydia who begins to believe this is a funny picture I couldn't find any other picture, but this is clearly she was named a saint by the Catholic Church. this is a picture of her but Lydia is ascribed in this um, part of Scripture in Acts 16 as being a a businesswoman. She um, dealt in fabrics, purple fabrics specifically. She came from a place called Thyatira, which at that time was known for its dye, its indigo dyes. And so, she was probably from Thyatira, and she had a business there, and she came to Philippi to, to do that business there, to sell those fabrics or those dyes. So she was a businesswoman, and when she heard the gospel, she believed, and she was baptized, and then she invited Paul and his crew to stay with her while they were in Philippi. So she she hosted them immediately, that's where they stayed while they were there. There's also an indication that the church began to meet in her home. It's a very small indication, but I'm going to go with it, in Acts 16, verse 40, after Paul and silas get out of prison it says so they went out from prison and visited lydia and when they had seen the brothers they encouraged them and departed so it seems to me to indicate they went to see lydia and while they were there they encouraged the brothers who were there meaning they were meeting in her home which i think is cool speculation but i'm going to go with it we don't know if the church continued to meet in her home for a long time We just don't know much about the church there after paul left all we know is on his next missionary journey he travels through there on the way somewhere else because he was visiting multiple churches encouraging them but all it says is he leaves from philippi going somewhere else it doesn't mention the church it doesn't mention lydia for all we know lydia may have gone back to thyatira because there is Um, in Revelations, reference to a church in Thyatira, and who's to say Lydia didn't move back and bring the gospel with her? We don't know any of that stuff. So, all that's just speculation, but that's kind of the background of this, this kind of important city, Philippi. Now, when was it written? So, as far as when Paul wrote this letter, this is kind of what we know. Paul refers to himself as a prisoner in this letter multiple times. So, it's safe to assume he wrote it while he was in prison. And we know Paul was imprisoned once at Caesarea around 57 to 59 AD and was again imprisoned in Rome around 60 to 62 AD. So it could have been during either of those times, but there's this general idea that I kind of subscribe to that Paul wrote these letters while in Rome in prison because it's described there that it wasn't really it wasn't prison as much as more like a house arrest. So he was given more freedom. He probably could have materials to write. He could receive visitors. Somebody could have been there with him to help him write. Whereas if he was in the other prison before, like literally locked in chains, it would have been more difficult. So there's this idea that while he was in Rome under house arrest, he wrote not only this letter but three other letters and they're called the prison epistles and they're listed up there. We've been through Ephesians Now we're looking at Philippians, Nexus, Colossians. These are all prison epistles, letters Paul wrote while in prison. And if it's true that he wrote it while in prison in Rome, then we can say that it was written between 60 and 62 A.D. That's as far as the timing. So what is the main purpose of this letter? Some letters come right out and say, this is why I'm writing you. Corinth was like that, the letter of the, the first Corinthians was like that. Uh, he's like, I'm, this is why I'm writing to you, I heard a report, and you've asked me these questions, and now here's my response. This letter is not like that. Uh, Paul doesn't come out and say, this is why I'm writing you, but I think we can get a general idea about it when you just read through the, the letter a couple of times, it's only four chapters long, doesn't take a lot of time. When you read through it like that, you can kind of get a general sense about why he's writing it. And when I came to Philippians 1, verse 25, there's a phrase that I felt like captured the essence of really why Paul was writing. In Philippians 1, verse 25, it says, "...convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith." And I think that captures most of the essence of why Paul wrote. So we could just say, in general, Paul's purpose for writing the letter is for their progress and joy in the faith. But there's one more aspect that becomes really prevalent in this letter. Paul talks a lot about suffering. He talks a lot about being in prison and he's encouraging them to suffer like he suffered. He's encouraging them to be strong, to stand firm, to stand against the opposition, to not become like the circumcision, like the Jews. And so I'd say a better purpose statement would be Paul's purpose in writing the letter is for the progress and joy in the faith in the midst of suffering. And we'll see that as we go through how often the topic of suffering comes out in this letter. So how about the structure of this book? Structure is really important when you want to understand a book of the Bible. As Christians, we want to always avoid taking a single verse and applying it without understanding the context in which it was written. You want to understand what came before it, what comes after it. You want to have an idea about the kind of overarching flow of thought of the writer so that you know when you come to a verse, oh, this is connected to that because of this, and that's what he's getting to, and he's leading up to this thing there, so it's really important to do that. Some books have a really easy structure like Ephesians that was like super simple and we could go back to it over and over again. It was the first three chapters of what God has done. The second three are what we must do. That was a great structure. It helped us the whole way through to understand where we were at in the book. Uh, Philippians is different than that. It's not as basic of a structure. And it basically follows the simple idea that Paul is writing a church and giving them different kinds of exhortations. And so I've kind of gone through and I've broken it up in the way that I think makes sense. There are also some really neat ideas about this. Some people have worked the whole book of Philippians into some kind of chiasmic structure, if you know what that is. Um, I think that feels kind of forced. It's a neat idea. I just don't subscribe to that. I think it's more simple. And so what I want to do is just kind of go over the main sections in terms of structure. And it also gives us an idea of the main themes. And so this is going to be kind of an overview of what we've got to look forward to for the rest of our time in Philippians. So first we have the opening address, and we'll look at that next week where Paul talks about himself and Timothy, servants of Christ, all the saints. We're going to discuss who saints are. And then he mentions with the overseers and deacons. So we're going to discuss what overseers are and what deacons are. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the opening address next week. After that, we get into this section, Paul's prayer for the Philippians. And there's really two parts to that. The first part, Paul's expressing gratitude for them. And he's always remembering them in his prayers, always because of their partnership with him in the gospel. So we're going to talk about what it means to partner in the gospel with people. And also, he's grateful and he's confident that God's going to continue the work in them. And the second part of this prayer is that Paul expresses a love and affection for the people in Philippi. And he prays for their spiritual improvement in many ways, that their love would abound more and more, with knowledge and discernment, approving what's excellent, being pure and blameless until Christ comes, filled with fruit of the righteousness, the glory and praise of God." So it's a, it's a great section of Paul's, Paul's heart for these people. And the next section, section three, is how Paul's imprisonment is advancing the gospel. And there are a lot of parts to this. Uh, Paul will talk about how um, the fact that he's in prison has actually been a good thing for the sake of the gospel, how all know that he's in prison for Christ's sake, how that's given people courage to preach more, more boldly. But then he's going to talk about how some preach from bad motives, but how he still rejoices anyway. So whether or not someone's preaching the gospel for the right or the wrong reasons, he rejoices because at least the gospel is being preached, and so we'll look at those things. From there, he starts talking about why he rejoices anyway and the importance of the gospel being spread out and how he believes that through their prayers that the preaching of the gospel is gonna result in Paul's deliverance, but he doesn't mean freedom by deliverance. There's this is an interesting thing where he mentions deliverance and then he says, whether or not I die or not. So deliverance for him is regardless of life or death, it's deliverance, and so he means something different by that, we'll get into that. In the last part of this section, Paul talks about why to live is for Christ's glory, but to die is gain. So he's okay with whatever God wants to do, but as long as he's on the earth, his goal is to serve others. He's like, as long as I'm still here, God must want me to be useful. I can't wait to go to him, but as long as I'm here, I want to be useful. And so we'll talk about that. And it's in that final section where Paul says, it's for your progress and joy in the faith. So that's all under this section about how the imprisonment advances the gospel. And obviously you can see like the talks of suffering will kind of come up there a lot. The next section, I just called it in general, Instruction on Living Worthy of the Gospel of Christ because Paul kind of mentions that, and there are again like a lot of sections underneath of this. Um, He'll talk about the importance of being united in the face of persecution. He'll talk about the importance of being a servant to others, esteeming others greater than yourself. We'll talk about working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, which is a fun thing to talk about because it sounds different than what he means by it, and he mentions being a light to the world and the importance of that, how we shouldn't be grumbling or bickering with one another, and how the world will perceive us as blameless and innocent children of God, and in that way we're going to be lights in the world if we don't grumble and bicker, and if we hold fast to the truth. And then he talks about rejoicing also in this section about being living worthy, the importance of rejoicing no matter what happens whether in suffering or good times, rejoicing in all things, just like Paul Paul does. And then there's this odd section in the middle of the book. I call it odd because this is the kind of thing you'd normally read at the end of a book. This is like right in the middle of it. Paul talks about how he's gonna send Timothy to them and send Epaphroditus to them. And we'll talk about why I think it's in the middle of the book. It's an interesting idea. I'm not sure it's right, but it's interesting. I'll share it. We'll get there. Um, after that, we get into this other section that I've titled The Relationship Compared with Legalism and Paul's example. Paul talks about the legalistic Jews and how they viewed things and how different it is when you view things through faith in Christ and through righteousness. And that's when we get into the, uh, how the legalists are outside of the faith. They're not believers. If you're a legalist, if you think you're earning your salvation, you're not a believer. You're outside of the faith. And we'll talk about the inferiority of legalism and the superiority of Christ, knowing Him. We'll also talk about the importance of working for Christ and not for salvation and the difference. How we do work, but we work for Christ and not for our salvation. I'm also going to bring up the point that I hate the term, it's not about religion, but relationship, because relationship is religion. And I want to make that term great again because the Bible talks about pure and undefined religion, and this is religion, and the Bible is for right religion, and I hate the idea that we're saying this isn't religion. It's re-. What we mean is, it's not legalism, it's relationship, because it is religion, so I want to win that term back, and all of your minds will do that. Um, and we'll talk about the importance of following good examples, Paul says, follow me, the way I've lived, the way I've cast aside legalism for faith, the way I've abandoned all things for the sake of knowing Christ, he says, follow me and that, follow my example. Then there's a great section that I've called, The Lord is at Hand, Live Accordingly, where he mentions more instructions, but kind of with this emphasis on the Lord is at hand, he's near, he's coming soon. And so he says things like, stand firm in the Lord, be an example of peace to all. And he says things like, fill your mind with goodness and then put it to practice. Set your mind on what is pure, what is holy, what is good, all those things. Keep your mind on those things, honorable, just, pure, holy, and then practice them. So again, the connection between belief and practice and in the context of the Lord is at hand. And then this section on partnership in the gospel, where he talks about this church and how they've supported him in his ministry, but how he's learned to be content. He doesn't need their money, but if they send him money or whatever supplies, it worked out for their benefit in the end, but he's grateful. And so we're going to talk about partnership in the gospel and supporting ministries and that sort of thing. And then the closing words. Every letter's got closing words. We'll look at that. Paul gives glory to God, he asks him to greet every saint. And says, the brothers that are with him greet them and wishes grace to be with their spirit. And so we'll talk about how it's great when churches know one another and greet one another and can support one another and have fellowship like that, like we do with some churches. And so, so that's kind of the overview of the structure. Um, that's sort of the letter in a in a bird's eye view. And all that's left that I want to do this morning is just read one final section because it is the section that we got our church name from knowing god and it's also the section from which we get our vision statement it's all about knowing god so our name knowing god church our vision statement it's all about knowing god what are you about knowing god what's your vision statement it's all about knowing god it all came from this letter it says want to read that and then we'll close with communion and i hope that this has gotten you at least excited to read more i know it's more academic on this Sunday, but we're going to have communion together. We're going to have fellowship afterwards, so Sunday's not over, but uh, hopefully this gives you a good taste of what's coming. And like I said, we're going to go slow through this, and we're going to just really like savor every bite of this letter. So, I'm just going to read Philippians 3, verses 7 through the first part of verse 9, and then we'll end with communion. But whatever gain I had,